welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast in which I, a middle-aged man, play through old adventure game books for your fun and edification. My name is H.J. Doom, and this episode we're going to be tackling Talisman of Death, book 11 in the deliriously popular fighting fantasy franchise. This is another book that isn't written by the core team of Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, instead being the work of Jamie Thompson and Mark Smith best known for the ninja-themed Way of the Tiger gamebook sequence, which I played and really liked as a child. It was first published in 1984 by Puffin Books, and has interior art by Bob Harvey and cover art, at least in the edition I've got, by Peter Andrew Jones. Let's dive straight in. Okay, so this fighting fantasy game book is... Pretty much business as usual. We've got skill, stamina, and luck. I've generated a character called Spandau Camembert, who has a skill of 11, a stamina of 20, and a luck of 11. I wasn't 100% honest when I was rolling that character, I have to say. We've also got provisions, which sees a welcome return. So 10 provisions as usual. We've got the choice of three potions, skill, stamina, or luck. I've chosen the Luck Potion, which is what I always go for. And in addition to these, we also have five torches and a flint and tinder to light them with. So I'm guessing that darkness is going to feature to a greater or lesser extent in this book. Okay, let's begin. You are regaining consciousness. Your eyes flutter open to the sound of a songbird, trilling joyously. You are lying on a couch of green velvet, set on the topmost turret of a great white castle hanging in the clouds. Rising to your feet, you look around. The songbird, whose sleek feathers are a warm, burnished gold, is perched on the battlements, resplendent against the ocean-blue canopy of a sky in which there is no sun. You are clad in strange, outlandish clothes, breeches of dark green leather and a thickly quilled leather jerkin. On your feet are russet red calfskin boots, supple and comfortable, into which the breeches are tucked at mid-calf. A heavy sword is belted at your side, and with a shock, you realise that somehow you know how to use it skilfully and with deadly force. As the songbird trills, you try in vain to recall memories of earth, but everything is hazy and distant. You see, unlike that now, it's called being nearly 42. You've been taken from the world you know, and trained in the art of swordplay. You cannot remember even who trained you or why, but the hilt of the sword fits your hand snugly. Drawing it, you lunge and parry, marvelling at how the sword cuts through the air faster than the eye can follow. The songbird seems unperturbed by your fine display of swordsmanship, but you are surprised when it cocks its head and speaks to you, its voice fluting merrily. Welcome, champion of fate. Do not be dismayed, you are not yet in danger. Where am I? you ask, feeling as if you are in a dream. Far, far from your home, I fear to say. This is the world of Orb, and you are in the garden of the gods. What is Orb? you demand. You will find it most strange and full of wonder, for it is very different from Earth. Men must share it not just with talking creatures such as I, but with weird and fell monsters, giants, dragons, and demons. There are warlocks and sorcerers too, great wielders of magic in the cities. But do not fear, you have been chosen to be our champion, for you are more likely to succeed than any other on earth. Now I must complete my task. Come, my masters bid you join them in the chamber below. Please follow me. 
I want to say at the outset that any world whereby I am their best hope of salvation is doomed. Straight up doomed. With that, the golden songbird flutters away down a spiral staircase. Shaking your head in confusion, you descend the stone steps into a large circular room where two beings turn towards you. Welcome, says one, a pale female figure enfolded in a swirling robe of many colours, above which you can only see a perfectly smooth and hairless head. The robe shimmers, its colours shifting as she steps towards you, catching your mind before you realise what is happening. Looking into her face, you see an image of yourself fighting for your life inside a huge temple. Then the image shifts and you see yourself leaving a walled city, hastening alone across a desolate moor, only to find yourself deep in a jungle, surrounded by devils with blue skins. Your nape bristles as you realise she is revealing glimpses of your destiny. It is only when they are over that you notice she has no eyes in her smooth, pale face. The other figure changes even as you look at him. At one moment he is an ancient, white-haired man, heavy with knowledge. At another, an infant, wise beyond his years. The metamorphosis through youth to age takes but a few instants, yet flows so smoothly you cannot see the features change. His voice is soft and ageless. We have summoned you, here to the world of Orb, because we wish to prevent a fatal upset in the balance of nature. The cosmic scales have been tipped too far, and you must play a part in writing them. It is not for us in the Garden of the Gods to set things right. We cannot fight him who would bring chaos to Orb. Rather, we use men as our tools. I shall not say whether you will succeed. I mean, that's a pretty impressive abdication of Orb responsibility. More than a hint of the job's worth about this strange and ageless demigod or god. The floor of the room upon which you are standing is the most realistic and detailed map imaginable. You can even see small figures tilling the fields and walking the streets of an entire world. A world of pinnacled castles. Knights on horseback, their men-at-arms bearing banners which stream in the wind. And strange, high-walled cities with towers and spires, concealing the dives of assassins and thieves among the splendour. The eyeless immortal steps forward, her robe now the colour of the deep sea, and caresses your cheek. It's a sad indictment of our times that my first thought is, well, that's not a good idea, what with the pandemic and all. We are sending you down to the surface of Orb. If you fall into the clutches of death, we cannot aid you. Do not fail us. Failing what? you begin to ask. But just then, to your horror, you find yourself being drawn inoxorably towards a black crack in the map. The realisation that your destiny is being tampered with angers you, and you resolve to find a way back to Earth and your home at all costs. As the world of Orb rises up to engulf you, the awesomeness of what is happening overwhelms you, and you lose consciousness. I do like that it's presenting our character as not entirely on board with this destiny that's been thrust upon them and acknowledge that we may find these two immortal beings a little bit on the annoying side, what with their meddling in our otherwise perfectly ordinary life. When awareness returns, you look around. You are standing in a huge vaulted chamber, deep underground. In the chill air, you wonder what terrible fate may be in store for you. You are utterly alone, without a friend in the world, and you have no idea what fiendish horrors may exist here, so far from home. There are no windows in the chamber, nor natural light, only the ruddy glow of flaming torches that affix to pillars soaring beyond sight. The walls are running with damp. 
the air musty and heavy with age. There are two archways at the back of the cavern. Before you can investigate further, the torchlight flickers, and a cool gust chills you to the marrow. Something in the unseen darkness is causing the air to move. A light flashes briefly ahead, and an infernal howling echoes across the vast vault. No living thing could possibly have made that dreadful sound, you think to yourself. But then you remember you know nothing of the dreadful denizens of Orb. You hear the sound of running footsteps approaching rapidly. You cannot yet see who or what is coming. Will you run through the nearest archway, or hold your ground and draw your sword? I've only just realised that the two immortal beings haven't actually told me precisely what my mission is. Yeah, yeah, I've just checked, and they've thrown me into this world with some weird hand-wavy stuff about saving the world, but not actually told me what I need to do in order to save the world. This is what I imagine working for the Prime Minister feels like. So, are we going to run through the nearest archway or hold our ground? Well, I'm a little sorry that we don't start with a straightforward left-right decision, as is traditional, but I guess we'll run through the nearest archway. Like things that howl infernally. I mean, I'm generally predisposed to avoid them if I possibly can. As you dash towards the forbidding blackness of the archway, you hear a click, followed by a rumbling sound ahead. The floor beneath your feet begins to tremble. Do you want to hurl yourself through the archway into the darkness, or stop your headlong flight? I think that this is some kind of obvious trap, so I will stop my headlong flight. You stop just in time. A slab of smooth rock slams down from above with a crash that reverberates around the cavern. It blocks the arch completely. The other one is similarly sealed. Realising that you have no choice, you turn to face the oncoming footsteps and draw your sword. Well, that's nice. We've been almost killed and railroaded into a fight within seconds of gaining control of our character. This bodes extremely well. A woman wearing chainmail and carrying a loaded crossbow bursts into the torchlight ahead of you. Seeing you, she immediately points the bow in your direction. Three men, panting heavily, appear behind her. The first, a tall, handsome man, is dressed in shining silver armour, and the blade of his two-handed sword glows with a faint white radiance. The next is dressed in a flowing robe of cloth of gold and wears a smiling golden mask. He carries an ivory staff. The last is a thick-set man with a white surcoat over chainmail. A red cross adorns his breast and a spiked mace hangs at his side. They stop. Once again you hear a wailing louder than before. They are almost upon us, cries the man with the glittering sword. The shield maiden calls to you. Who are you? What are you doing here in the rift, the spawning place of all evil? There is a really nice picture of the four adventurers. I mean, they seem like a pretty classic adventuring party. And I'm very pleased to see that the woman, the shield maiden, does actually appear to be wearing a functional suit of armour rather than the traditional armoured bikini, which, yeah, makes a nice change in the early 80s. Sadly, the man with the golden mask, his mask is frozen in an attitude of unbelievable smugness. But I imagine he's some kind of priest. And then we've got, I guess, a paladin and a cleric. But they're really nicely drawn, very, very characterful. So how are we going to deal with them? Uh, tell them that we've come from another world, say that we're on a quest against evil, try and play for time, or attack the shield maiden. Well, I'm not going to attack the Shield Maiden. She is clearly armed with a crossbow. Also, it would be four against one. 
I don't really see the point in trying to play for time. I might be on a quest against evil, I'm not sure. I think I'll say I've come from another world. It has the virtue of being true. Her eyebrows rise in surprise. All four of them look at you in disbelief. The man in gold turns to the priest in the white surcoat and asks, Is it the truth? Knowing your story to be true, you decide to wait while the priest casts a spell. It is the truth, he says, and spoken from a true heart. The shield maiden lowers the bow and moves over to guard the entrance of the cavern. What are we to do? The exits are blocked and I have only the power to teleport one of us out, says the man in gold. Perhaps this warrior has been sent by the gods to continue the quest. Sensing the goodness of these people, you wait to hear how you can aid them. The priest steps towards you and tells you this story. I'm glad I didn't go for a more complicated accent. It looks like quite a long story. Long ago, the minions of the god Death, in the city of the Runes of Doom, fashioned a talisman that would allow them, if the time was right, to summon their god to the surface of this world. That time has now come. If Death is summoned, all life will cease. Only Death's minions will continue to exist in an awful half-life. His presence will spread like a grey shadow across the world of Orb. Everything will turn to dust, and the balance of nature will be disrupted forever. The law masters of Sarakub, a group of holy people, have striven to prevent this. They have sent a group of crusaders, of which we four alone survive, on a quest to steal the talisman. The fleshless king of the minions of death has sent the talisman to the depths of the rift for safekeeping. We have entered this pit of evil and seized it. He pulls a necklace out from under his surcoat. On it hangs a disc of obsidian, in the middle of which is a skull carved in ruby. The talisman of death. He hands it to you. Here, for the sake of all orb, you must take this talisman and continue the quest. It cannot be destroyed, but if you can take it to your world, it will be beyond the reach of the claw of the Fleshless King. Either that, or the Fleshless King will come to our world and destroy that, and the world of Orb will be saved. I'm taking a lot on trust here. You are impressed by the courage and unselfish fortitude of these people, and resolve to continue the quest. You take the talisman, it feels cold and heavy around your neck. The wizard turns to you and says, I am going to use the powers of magic to transport you to the surface. Head west until you come to the City of Learning, Grey Guilds on the Moor, where you may discover a way to return to your own world. Here, take this gold, it may be of use to you, and do not fail us. He gives you a purse with ten gold pieces in it. As the wizard prepares his spell, a horde of creatures boils into the cavern. Dark elves and cave trolls are pouring into the cavern, attacking the shield maiden. As the paladin and priest rush to her aid, you see a huge shadowy form looming behind the sea of elves and trolls. The paladin's glittering sword cuts through the horde, but the dark elves are using magic, and the shield maiden is unable to turn back their attack. She falls beneath their onslaught. The huge fiend howls triumphantly, just as the wizard completes his spell. Wow. Exciting stuff, but also stuff in which it's been some time since I actually had a choice. We are being jumped from one reasonably lengthy descriptive passage to the next. I feel like a little bit more brevity might have been worthwhile. Suddenly, you are in blinding sunshine. You are standing at the lip of an immense chasm. You realise this must be the rift the Crusaders spoke of. The rocky earth is blackened and cracked, full of pits and fissures, and noisome fumes rise from the depths of the chasm. To the west you see a range of green hills, partially covered in trees and thick woodland. 
A few hundred meters to your right you can see where a forest begins, extending all the way to the hills. You realize that you must head in the direction of the hills to reach Greyguilds, but which route will you take? Would you rather go through the forest or take the more direct route across open ground? Well, I feel like I want to go through the forest. I feel as though open ground is dangerous. I can't say why I feel that, other than the fact that I'm quite agoraphobic. And I don't like big, wide open spaces where people can see me. So I prefer somewhere where I can hide from people. And I feel like I can hide better in a forest than I can on open ground. You enter the green, gloomy shade of the woods. After a while, you stumble into a clearing and stop in surprise at the sight that greets you. A huge white she-wolf, almost as large as a pony, is suckling two cubs. She pushes them aside and crouches, snarling. Do you want to back off and leave? Offer the wolf some dried meat or attack her? I mean, I guess I could offer her some dried meat. I am nothing if not an animal lover. Cross one provisions off. Okay. So I offer her some pork dumplings. Crouching on one knee, you toss the dried meat to the wolf, speaking in soothing tones as you do so. The wolf accepts your gift. Then a green robed figure steps into the clearing. He has an oak staff in one hand and a silver sickle in the other. A crown of mistletoe rests on his head. Nice illustration of this druidy figure and his enormous wolf. And very much a druid, as you might expect effectively looks like a more realistic take on Getafix from the Asterix comics. He smiles at you and says, My name is Woodman. I am the guardian druid of this sacred grove. My friend Snowmane thanks you for the gift of food. Such gentle generosity deserves reward. The blessing of the druids will go with you. May fortune smile on you. You gain one luck point for the druid's blessing. I mean, I haven't lost any luck yet, but hey, there we go. You look weary, he says. Here, have this. He takes a golden apple from his robes and hands it to you. Note it down on your adventure sheet. Such apples are wonderfully refreshing and will restore up to four stamina points when you eat one. You thank him and, knowing you must continue on your quest, reluctantly leave the idyllic peace of the sacred grove. So, yeah, luck point and a provision back. And the provision is an apple. Considerably less exciting than the stuff I usually eat, but hey, I'm not going to complain. You force through heavy undergrowth for some time, making your way over the hill and onto the thick wooded valley on the other side. You then take a trail heading west and are making good speed until, rounding a corner, you see a huge brown-scaled lizard with eight legs basking in the sun. Its heavy horned jaw is filled with long pointed teeth. You may test your luck to see if you can slip past without waking it, or you can not take the risk and leave the path to cut away through the undergrowth. I'm enjoying that a lot of these decisions we're being asked to make do feel quite meaningful. They don't feel all that arbitrary. I mean, presumably they are arbitrary. That's the way these game books work, but they feel weighty, which I'm liking. I think we're going to try and sneak past it. Let's use that bonus luck point we got. Yep, absolutely fine. Let's see what happens. Creeping stealthily, you barely rustle the dried leaves underfoot. The soporific basilisk does not even notice you, which is just as well. Its eyes flicker open for a moment and a small mouse, which happens to be running across its line of vision, slows and turns to stone. You hurry quickly on your way, lest you suffer the same fate. A lucky escape there indeed. The trail winds between the spurs of two hills and plunges down into a moist and mossy dell. At the bottom, a large dew pond, covered with algae, 
is shaded by the boughs of a horse chestnut tree. Your attention is caught by a weak cry. An old woman is up to her neck in the middle of the pool. Her matted hair is streaked green with the scum of the pool. I'm drowning. Help me. I'm tangled in the weeds. She begs piteously. Do you wish to help her or ignore her and hurry on? I feel as though we must be due a wrong un at this point. Pretty much everyone else we've met has been nice. Surely we are due a wrong un at this point. Like, how did you get in there in the first place? This, to me, is pure, undiluted hag. I feel like this is a hag, and I am going to ignore her, and I am going to hurry on. Eventually, the hills give way to a desolate grey moor stretching out to the west. After half an hour or so, you see a cloud of dust ahead. You can soon make out a group of twenty horsemen. They wheel their steeds towards you, and the drumming of hooves carries to you over the breeze. As they get nearer, you can see that this is a band of warrior women, clad in chainmail and studded leather armour. Their faces look grim and unwelcoming as they wheel around you, forming a closed circle. Their captain spurs her horse forward, and tersely demands what you are doing out here alone on the edge of the moor. We've got a nice picture of the horsewomen. They seem to have some really quite big swords and shields. It's another really, really nice piece of artwork, to be fair, and another example of sensibly dressed warrior women. This book is doing really well on sensibly dressed warrior women. I heartily approve. So, am I going to tell these very business-like looking warriors about my quest, tell them I'm from another world, lie and tell them that I'm the last survivor of an ambushed caravan, pretend that I'm deaf and dumb, and demand they escort you to Grey Guilds on the moor? Like, demanding an escort is just the most man thing to do in this situation. I'm definitely not going to do that. I think I might just tell them about my quest. I'm going to work on the principle that these women are alive and therefore they don't much care for people who are dead. Unless they're mad death cultists, but they look more like soldiers than death cultists, I have to say. So I'm going to tell them about my quest. The captain and the other members of the patrol start to laugh at you. I'm quite used to that. She throws her head back with her hands on her hips and stares at you. Give me your sword and climb up behind Elvira here. She points to one of the younger women. We must take you back to Grey Guilds. You hand your sword to her or refuse to give it up? I think I will hand my sword to her because there's 20 of them on horseback, all heavily armed and armoured. Elvira helps you up behind her. She appears none too pleased at the prospect of sharing her horse with you and you ride in silence across the wilderness. Use two skill points until you acquire another sword. So we're on skill nine. Maybe I should have been ruder. Not something I usually have a problem with. You ride on into the late afternoon, moving from the wilderness to a grey and desolate moor. I would say that a grey and desolate moor is still a wilderness. Ahead, you can see the walls of a large city. A salute is given as you approach the huge arched gate in the fortified wall. The captain details half her patrol to remain on guard at the gate. Turning to you, she says, We are taking you to Horkana. She will want to ask you some questions. Do you want to seize the first opportunity to fight your way out, or go quietly and see what happens? Well, since I very thoughtfully and sensibly handed over my sword, it would now be me fist-fighting my way past twentily heavily armed warriors. So, I guess we're going to go quietly and see what happens really am making some tremendous decisions 
in the early going, I think. You ride into the city of learning, Grey Guilds, along a street called Moorgate. Many of the buildings are quite grand, built of light grey stone, kind of like Edinburgh. You see a mixture of people in the streets. There are some men wearing light blue togas who are sages and professors from the guilds of learning. Others, groups of young men and women, are carrying books and scrolls. You realise that, unarmed as you are, you are no match for these women and have no alternative but to go with them. You are taken along Moorgate, past various food and pottery shops, and then down bustling Store Street. They then turn right down Guard Street and come to a halt outside a squat grey building. It is the Watch House. The patrol dismounts and you are ushered inside. I feel as though those street names are going to become relevant and I've already forgotten them even though I'm still looking at the page on which they're written. Uh, and again, we are being ushered from one paragraph to the next. After a short delay, you are taken into a large office. Inside is a tall, striking, raven-haired woman dressed in a long black cloak, which parts to reveal the polished hilt of a longsword. Her bearing suggests great personal power. There is a picture of the woman. She's got masses of hair, very nice-looking sword, and an expression which I would describe as unbelievably posh. My British listeners will know what I mean when I say she has a horsey look about her. Her bearing suggests great personal power. She stands and greets you. I am Hokana, High Priestess of the Temple of Fel... Kyrinla? I'm not sure that's even a word. Kyrinla and Marshal of the Watch. You have been telling some unusual stories. She nods and the guards begin to search you. You try to resist but are held powerless. The talisman is ripped from its place of concealment and handed to Hokana. She recognises it immediately and laughs with rapturous delight. She turns away and says, I am going to the temple. Throw this fool out into the street. You are hustled out and the door of the watch house slams shut behind you. You have lost the talisman. What will you do next? Go back down Guard Street to Store Street, turn down Smith Street, or walk down the Street of Seven Sins. I feel like I want to go down Smith Street because that seems like a place where I might be able to get another sword. And I do really need a sword. This adventure is going unbelievably well, isn't it? It's been very, very trusting, and it has been my undoing. Still, on we go. Let's go and try and find a sword. Aha! You stride down Smith Street. Next door to a tinker's shop, you see what appears to be an armourer's. Do you wish to go in or pass by? I wish to go in, please. Inside, working at an anvil, is a brawny man glistening with sweat. He is fashioning the hilts of a sword. Other finished swords stand in a rack along one side of the shop. Take your pick. Seven gold pieces, he says, without looking up. You may buy one if you wish, or thank him and leave. I will buy one, as I have ten gold pieces. So I now have three gold pieces and a sword which means my skill is back to 11. Finally I've made a good decision. You choose a sword which feels well balanced. It is a well-crafted longsword similar to those used by the warrior women. You may restore the two skill points you lost if you had your sword taken. You pay the man and leave. You continue on down Smith Street. There are no shops here and the street is deserted except for a stooping cowled figure who looks like a beggar. He comes up to you and suddenly draws himself up to his full height. Inside the cowl there is nothing, no face, just two glowing coals suspended in the blackness. Your horror at this apparition turns to dread as it hisses in a sibilant whisper. Did you think you could run from death? Give me that.
The talisman. A black gloved claw reaches out towards you. There is a picture of this harrowing figure. And again, it's just really nice. Really, really nice. It's clutching at its robes with one hand and stretching out another hand towards the reader. And the gambrel roofs in the background are sort of looming up in a claustrophobic way. The artwork in this is top notch. So do we say that we no longer have the talisman or attack the thing immediately? Well, let's just tell it we don't have the talisman. Lies. It hisses and strikes you with its claw before you can move. A chill, numbness spreads from the wound and you feel as if your lifeblood is being drained away. Lose one skill point and two stamina points. Who would have thought that the minion of death would not be amenable to a little rational discussion? Now you must fight the minion of death. Each time it strikes you, you lose one skill point as well as the normal stamina point loss. Minion of death has a skill of seven and a stamina of seven. So hopefully it won't be too much of a challenge. I'm going to roll some dice. I have killed the minion of death and happily it didn't land a single blow on me so I didn't lose any further skill, which is nice. Your last blow meets no resistance. The grey cloak billows to the ground in a heap. All is silent except for a sudden keening of the wind. You rest and begin to overcome the shock to your system. If you have lost any skill points, all but one are restored. That's neat. That's genuinely really neat. So you get penalised in the combat, so every time you take a hit, it's more likely that it will take a hit in future. And it takes one skill point, but otherwise, yeah, you're fine. That is a very, very smart design decision, and one which presumably reduces the chance of someone flinging the book against a wall in a fit of rage. Turning down Silver Street, you are startled by what sounds like men's voices whispering near you. You soon realise that a trick of the wind is carrying their words to you through a broken piece of pipe which connects a ramshackle house to an open drain. There are three of them, and it seems that they are planning to rob the jewellers, which you can plainly see on the bend of Silver Street. There is a shabby staircase leading up to the house, and you creep towards it. You go up the staircase, walk quickly to the jewellers, ignore this, and turn into Store Street. Um, I feel like being heroic has not done me any favours, so I think we're going to ignore it and turn into Store Street. Like, for all I know, they need the money to care for their sick mothers. I'm not in a position to judge their moral compass. Obviously, probably, they're just murderous robbers, but I, I don't feel like I can justify getting involved. You continue along Store Street and then down a tree-lined avenue called Booker's Walk. Two very grand buildings built of blocks of grey stone stand on either side of the road. A group of young people in blue togas escorted by a white-haired old man in pale blue robes enters the building opposite. A flag showing books and scrolls is flying from the nearest building. It appears to be a library. I really wish that libraries had an official flag. That would be awesome. Will you see what information the library has to offer or investigate the other buildings to find out what the young people are doing? I think I'll go into the library. I used to work in a library. I loved working in a library. The entrance hall of the library is filled with desks at which scribes are working, copying books and scrolls. Reclining on a plush window seat is a wrinkled old fellow in the pale blue robes of a scholar. You feel out of place wearing armour in the quiet of the library, where the stillness is broken only by the scratching of pens. Welcome to the largest library in the Man March, says the sage. Choose any tome 
or scroll you may wish to peruse. Perhaps I can be of some assistance. What is your field of study? Uh, were you asked to read something about the gods or asked to read about the history of grey guilds? I think grey guilds is the more pressing concern. The sage shows you to a side room full of reading desks. A few are occupied by students of history, young and old. With an expansive gesture, he points to a wall lined with shelves which are filled with scrolls and tablets. You choose a set of scrolls called Grey Guilds Revisited by Nilev. Or Nilevi? I'll go with Nilevi. It is the story of a dissolute young nobleman who failed to take advantage of the education offered by the Guilds of Learning. You are able to glean much interesting information about the city. The religious orders hold all the power. You are astonished to find that Varga, the god of thieves, liars and cutthroats, has most followers within the city. There is a temple to death in the city as well. Indeed, it seems that Greyguilds is not the tranquil city that once it was. The armed forces protecting the city come from two groups. The warrior women who worship the evil goddess Fel Kyrinla and the followers of the Allmother. Greyguilds lies on the edge of a large plain called the Man March, or the lands of men. It is just one of many cities in this part of the world. As you are wondering whether you will ever visit Doomover or the Spires of Foreshadowing, the other students begin filing out. With a start, you realise it is already dark, and you leave quickly, looking for a safe place to sleep. You leave the building and continue on down Booker's Walk. The streets are already deserted, and there are few lights in this part of the city. You search for the welcoming light of an inn, then, without warning, the steel teeth of a hidden man-trap snap shut around your leg, ripping your flesh. You are in terrible pain, lose two stamina points. I guess we might be about to encounter those thieves we read so much about. Shadowy figures loom out of the murk all around you. Their faces glow with sickly pallor in the moonlight. They are wearing black robes clasped at the neck by shrunken human skulls. Do you still have the talisman of death? No, I gave it to a posh lady. So no, we don't. We are the priesthood of death, says one of the figures. We have come for what is ours. Your arms are held and you are searched. Realising that you are not carrying the talisman, they step back. One of them strikes you across the face. Where is it hidden, worm? Suddenly, the clatter of hooves disturbs the menacing priests. A large group of riders carrying torches comes into sight, and the priests melt back into the shadows as silently as they came. The riders of the watch halt before you. You're in a pretty pickle. That's one less problem for us tonight, eh, girls? This provokes a gale of laughter, but you fail to see the funny side as they ride off, leaving you held fast in the jaws of the trap. Yeah, if I get out of this and write the Lonely Planet Guide to Grey Guilds, there's, there's going to be some... Uh, Harsh words for the local constabulary, I have to say. Backpacker's Guide to Grey Guilds. Don't. The end. You are left alone to wonder how the lawkeepers of this city could be so cruel as to leave an innocent person in such dire straits. You tear feverishly at the trap, terrified of some footpad slitting your throat for his own vile amusement. Soft footsteps approach. You look over your shoulder and see a man approaching. Here, he says, let me rescue you from this trap. He steps on the release catch, which has been out of your reach, and the trap springs open. You step free, and he walks along by your side. Have you a place to stay tonight? Perhaps you'd like to sleep in my humble abode, he asks, looking sideways at you. You are curious that he should be walking the streets alone at night, but you are also exhausted. Will you accept his offer and go home with him, or decline his offer? Far be it from me to decline an offer of going home with a strange man. 
Like all kinds of fun could potentially result from that, I think. The man's house is a small stone bungalow. He leads you into his bedroom and offers you a straw-filled mattress behind a curtain. Thankful for any chance to rest, you go to sleep without asking any questions. You sleep deeply and you regain four stamina points. Back to four. That's exciting. You wake to find that your host is sitting, watching you. And there's a picture of him sat watching you. Where, to be fair, he looks like a reasonable sort and not at all like the kind of weirdo who sits up all night watching someone sleep. I hope you are well rested. You talked in your sleep. He smiles at you and says, do you need help? Has someone stolen something from you? How did you come to be trapped alone on the street late at night? Do I want to tell him the whole story and ask for his advice? Or would you prefer to say you cannot answer? Well, I think I'm going to ask for his advice. He's got a trustworthy face, and as far as I know, he didn't interfere with me while I was asleep. So, you know, what's not to like? Also, I could really use some help at this point. You tell him everything, and he listens with growing amazement. He introduces himself as Apothecus, a sage of history. I have heard of the talisman of death. You must recover it at all costs. He suggests that you enlist the help of the Thieves Guild, as he doesn't think you can recapture it alone. It will be in the temple to fell... Every time, every single time, I stumble over this word. It will be in the temple to kell... No. It will be in the temple to fell Kyrinla by now. I'll warrant Horkana, the High Priestess, will be holding it there. Go to the Red Dragon Inn on the Street of Seven Sins. It is dangerous, but you may make contact with the thieves there. He gives you a breakfast of savoury pancakes and invites you to dinner that evening, saying that he will try and discover more to aid you. In the meantime, he says, take these. He hands you five pieces of gold and a ring, which increases your skill at arms. So, magic ring plus one skill, meaning we're now back to skill 11. As you leave, he gives you a jade rose. When you return this evening, show this and I will know that you are not a shape changer. You thank him for his help and leave the bungalow. When you go to the Red Dragon Inn or head for the temple. I mean, I guess we'll go to the Red Dragon Inn. You take a side street which leads towards the Street of Seven Sins and are almost pushed aside by a couple of students in blue togas. They are quarrelling and begin fighting in front of you. Seems one of them disagrees violently with something the other has said. Typical students. As they tussle, you notice that the angry young man has dropped a small brass tiger charm. You want to interrupt the quarrel and give the charm back? Ignore them and go on your way or pick up the charm. I will pick up the charm. The brass tiger has a mischievous grin. You hang it round your neck, hoping it will bring luck or protection. Kind of hope it does. I mean, given that this book was by the authors of The Way of the Tiger, I, I do hold out some hope that a tiger necklace might actually bring me some luck. You come out into the Street of Seven Sins and soon find a Red Dragon Inn. Steps lead downwards and the sound of raucous laughter floats up from the smoke-filled gloom below. You enter and walk over to the only part of the dive where it is light enough to make anything out. Passing tables and stools, you come to the bar behind which stands the bulky proprietor of the inn. There's a picture of the innkeeper and he looks, this is probably for my British listeners, a bit UKIP. Do you have the brass tiger charm? I do. You stop at the bar and are about to ask the barman what there is to drink when you hear yourself saying, You fat pig, pour me a drink before the sight of your squalid, pus-ridden face makes me vomit. 
The barman stiffens, astonished and incensed, and rightly so, to be fair. He gives a strangled cry of rage, grabs his club and hurdles the bar. You step back, drawing your sword. Your eyes have adjusted to the gloom, and you notice that some of his customers are rising to their feet. They are the most disreputable bunch of villainous-looking cutthroats you have ever seen. One has a scar running from his ear to his chin. You must fight the barman and one other. I assume we fight them one at a time. It doesn't say we're fighting them at the same time. I guess this is why the people were fighting in the street, because the tiger charm makes you really very rude indeed. Uh, the barman has a skill of seven and a stamina of eight, and the first cutthroat has a skill of eight and a stamina of nine. There's some special rules. If you reduce the barman's stamina to four or less, he'll go back behind the bar. If you can then reduce the first cutthroat's stamina to five or less, we can then test our luck. I'm going to roll some dice. So, uh, yeah, I have beaten up the barman and the first cutthroat, as instructed. The barman has gone scuttling back behind the bar, and I've reduced the first cutthroat to five stamina. And I tested my luck, and I was lucky. During the fight, the brass tiger charm falls to the floor. Now that it's gone, you realise it was cursed and that it forced you to insult the barman. You make no attempt to recover it. The cutthroat yields and you are looked at with some admiration and respect. The barman tries to make light of things, saying, uh, You are truly a magnificent warrior. You, you could be a match even for Chai... Oh, dearie me. Chuchev. Let's go with that. Chuchev. He tells you the story of how Chuchev beat Heimdall the Mighty. It seems that Heimdall was one of the strongest and most unpleasant men ever to swill ale at the Red Dragon. One day a stranger, Tuchev, accepted his challenge to a bout of arm wrestling. Heimdall lost for the first time in his life. He was furious and threatened awful reprisals if Tuchev ever returned. A few nights later, Tuchev did return and began to insult Heimdall and two of his friends. In the inevitable fight which followed, Tuchev killed all of them and carved his initials on Heimdall's forehead. He worships the god of insane chaos, Anarchil, and since that night none has dared gainsay him here. Would you like to ask the whereabouts of the Thieves' Guild, or rather ask them for aid in completing some unfinished business? We do need to know where the Thieves' Guild are. So we'll go, yeah, we'll ask them the whereabouts of the Thieves' Guild. They invite you to join them for a drink, which you do. One of them tells you that the entrance to the Thieves' Guild is through an open storm drain which leads into the sewers near Trader's Row. They will meet you there at midday tomorrow. Two newcomers enter the Red Dragon Ale Cellar. The first is very tall, wiry man whose frame is draped in a black cloak. The only hint of colour is his hair, very curly and dyed bright corn yellow. The second is a handsome young woman, dressed in a bizarre patchwork of armour. The barman mutters under his breath, then forces his face into a smile. Choichev, Cassandra, welcome, he shouts obsequiously. The thieves move away from you to sit at another table. Choichev strolls to the bar and orders a drink. Cassandra sits opposite you at your table. She ignores you, and Choichev joins her. When you say nothing, get up and leave the ale cellar or introduce yourself. I need the denizens of this ale cellar to introduce me to the Thieves' Guild, so I don't think taking a powder is going to be the way forward. Oh, once again, there's another lovely, lovely bit of artwork. Yeah, really characterful, nice vibe of a, an underground, dimly lit bar. 
such as I maybe spent a certain amount of my youth in. Uh, but anyway, if I say nothing and then they start the fight, that's not my fault, is it? So we'll, we'll say nothing. There is an un uneasy silence in the ale cellar. Choichev looks across at you and says, I don't like your face. Cassandra nods agreement. Do you want to retort at least, unlike you, I am wholesome to look upon? Or meekly reply, I'm sorry I was born that way and leave the ale cellar. I think I will go for the bravado on this occasion. At this, they leap up, whipping out their blades and move to attack. Chuichev's sword is almost as tall as you are, and he wields it negligently in one hand. Cassandra's glows coldly. Each time she hits you, you must subtract three stamina points. If you reduce Cassandra's stamina to four or less, she drops back, and Chuichev moves in to cover her. If you reduce Chuichev's stamina to four or less go to the next paragraph so uh Choichev has a skill of 10 stamina of 12 cassandra skill of 9 stamina 10 this is going to be quite the tussle i may not survive it but if i do i'll see you in a few seconds i'm gonna roll some dice Good news, I managed to reduce them both to stamina 4 or less. Less good news, I've been reduced to a single stamina point in the process. Chuichev and Cassandra have done an absolute number on me. Still just about alive within the rules of the game, so uh, yeah, something to be thankful for. Your last blow has drawn a gout of blood from Chuichev's side. He jumps back and says, Anarchil, breaker of edifices, aid me. He is calling upon his god. Before you can strike the killing blow, the cellar starts to shake. An earthquake opens great cracks in the floor. There is a roar of tumbling masonry and the inn is filled with dust. In the confusion, Choichev and Cassandra make good their escape. When the quake has stopped, you climb the steps and leave. You step out, squinting against the bright light of the late afternoon sun. Add one luck point for visiting the Red Dragon Inn and living to tell the tale. You are back in the street of Seven Sins. If you have met a sage and he has invited you to dinner, you may go there. If you've not been invited or don't wish to go, you can go down a side street called Cobbler's Walk or down Merchant Street. I have been invited to dinner. Nice to get my luck back. But before I go to dinner, like any sensible person, I'm going to carb load before my main evening meal. So let's scarf down... A steak bake, a treacle sponge, and a lamb samosa, which will get me back to 13 stamina points. And uh, yeah, I can't help but feel set me up nicely for a presumably largish evening meal. On your way towards the sage's house, a small boy runs up to you and asks if you'd like to help a very clever scholar and make some money doing it. It won't take long. He adds, tugging at your sleeve. Do you want to thank him but decline and go on your way or will you go with the boy? This, oh, this feels like a difficult one. Um, I really don't want to go with him, so I won't. Do you know what? Much as I'm normally Mr. I've got to find out what happens, I'm just going to ignore the child because I'll be honest with you, I'm not brilliant with kids. Nothing against kids, I just prefer them once they've turned into adults. You come to the door of the sage's house and knock. After a few moments, a manservant opens the door. You explain that you have come to see the sage. The manservant asks you for the token. Do you have the token? I do have the token. Presumably you can lose the token somehow, which would be embarrassing. 
Here's another chance for me to do uh, my one and only butler voice. The servant says, Ah, oh, yes, you are expected. Please come in. You follow him into the parlour. The dining table is laid for three. Apothecus rises to greet you and introduces you to his friend, Diodorus, a sage who is an expert on the travel between the planes of existence. He tells you that there are portals or gates allowing travel between Orb and other worlds. He suspects that you may have been brought from Earth to Orb by means of such a portal. When you recover the talisman, he says, you must leave Grey Guilds and walk southeast until you come to the Great Plateau, Mount Star Reach, the tallest mountain on the plateau, has at its summit one of these portals, through which you must pass, if you wish to return to Earth. And now to more important matters, says Apothecus. You can leave the cemetery city by the postern gate in the cemetery. If you get into serious trouble, you may be able to call on the All-Mother for aid. To do so, cry, All-Mother, nature herself, preserve me. He makes you repeat the words and you commit them to memory. Note them on your adventure sheet. I shall, all mother, nature herself, preserve me. He explains that the all mother is the fountain of all life, the opposite of death. She may be prepared to help you, but only once at the time of your greatest need. However, remember this, no deity can intervene in another's temple. You thank them both and turn in early after a sumptuous meal of peacock basted in spirits of Ra and other exotic dishes. You wake up refreshed, although presumably with some quite considerable indigestion, and gain four stamina points. Stamina now 17. You bid Apothecus farewell, thanking him for all his help and hoping that you won't let him down. You set out to find the Thieves' Guild. As you set off, you see a small group of people clustered around a man wearing a flowing grey cloak and one dangling gold earring. He is making huge bunches of flowers appear and disappear to the cries of delight and amusement from the crowd. Will you try and find a way to the Thieves' Guild? Try and regain the talisman on your own or stay and watch the magic. I mean, pickpockets, it seems very much like a distraction so that pickpockets can pick pockets so i'm gonna go and try and find a way into the thieves guild it's very trusting this book have you been told about the storm drain if you have go to one paragraph if not turn to a different one so yes we have been told about the storm drain this was steve jackson storm drain would have its own three-digit identification code you turn right down traders row and walk for some way looking for the storm drain Eventually you see it and, checking that you are unobserved, jump down into it. You land up to your ankles in slime. You wade down the huge drain until you come to a small round door set in the left-hand wall. Are the thieves literally just wading through sewage every time they want to come in and out of their hideout? Because if so, that suggests a dedication to chicanery that I think even the most hardened doorbreaker would normally uh, fail to live up to. Okay, we're going to test our luck, apparently. Nine, we are lucky. Luck now down to ten. As you open the door, you slip on the slime underfoot. A glancing blow catches you on the side as a harpoon thuds into the door. Lose two stamina points. Stamina now fifteen. If you are still alive, you look behind and see the firing mechanism of the trap. You open the door and step into a magnificently furnished room. Evidently, the Thieves' Guild lacks for nothing, although presumably everything is somewhat inundated with sewage from the fact that you have to wade through raw sewage to get into the Thieves' Guild, but hey-ho. A group of men, some of whom you recognise from the Red Dragon, 
are lounging on sofas. They leap to their feet in surprise and reach for their swords. Will you place your back on the wall and draw your sword, or calmly tell them you have been invited? Hello, it's Oliver from the future, just letting you know that there is some missing audio from this section in which I prevaricate in my usual fashion before deciding to tell the thieves that I'd been invited to their lovely, potentially sewage-encrusted lair. If we had really wanted you to come here, don't you think we'd have told you the safe route? says a thief with a scar running from ear to chin, whom you recognise from the Red Dragon. They move towards you purposefully. This is the welcome we give to the likes of you, he continues. Will you place your back to the wall and draw your sword? Or sit down, telling them to kill you if they like, but they'll miss out on an attractive proposition. I'm so worried that I don't actually have an attractive proposition, other than breaking into a dangerous temple to save the world. But I am going to try and bluff my way out of it. Scarface looks you up and down for a moment, then he says, Right, I'll get the Guildmaster. We'll see what he has to say. There is an uneasy silence before he returns with another man. Scarface says, This is Vagrant, Guildmaster of Thieves. Vagrant is a handsome middle-aged man wearing an ermine jacket. Twirling his moustache, he asks you the purpose of your visit. I don't think he's all that. There's a picture, he seems fine, but I wouldn't describe him as uh, handsome. So, what will I say? Need help to steal something, which is sort of true? You want to steal the talisman of death, which is completely true, or you will lead them to a hoard of priceless jewellery, which is very, very much untrue. So I'll just go with the general... I need help to steal something. Oh yes, says Vagrant. Why is this thing? If you say you're not prepared to tell what it is, but it lies in the temple of Felkyrinla, Felkyrinla, almost first time of asking there, then turn to one paragraph. If you tell them it's the talisman of death and you are prepared to share the spoils when you get it, there's another paragraph. So I do think probably... Honesty may be the best policy here. There is a hushed silence broken by Vagrant. That is indeed beyond price. He suddenly barks out an order. We'll mount an expedition before they move the talisman. It is market day, a good time. Scarface, Jimmy the Rat, Bloodheart and our young Lord Min, you will accompany our friend here. Some hours later, when they have finished their preparations, you set off. As you leave, you see a piece of graffiti scrawled in blood on a wall. There is no honour among thieves. You resolve to be on your guard. Again, through some really quality decision-making, I've decided to go on an adventure with a bunch of professional murderers, basically, who are clearly going to A, outnumber me, and then shiv me in the kidneys as soon as it's expedient to do so. So this adventure kind of lurching from one disaster to another. Scarface leads you through a maze of back alleys into a building that Jemmy the Rat tells you is a safe house. You climb onto the roof and continue running across the rooftops of the city. Soon you are on top of a tall house just below the top of the temple of Felkyrinla, first time. 
Bloodheart, a hulking, silent fellow, takes a rope and grappling hook from his shoulder. He effortlessly throws it round the top of one of the temple columns. He secures his end to a chimney stack and walks across the tightrope he has created. You all manage to cross hand over hand and join him in the temple eaves. Jemmy the Rat, a wiry man with fingers like spider's legs, finds a skylight and, true to his name, prizes off the bars and picks the lock. Reaching inside, he disarms a trap containing a poisoned dart. You marvel at his nimble-fingered skill. They lower a rope and you all drop down to the top of a staircase. You catch sight of an old serving man passing a doorway on the landing. The others have not noticed him. Will you silence him in case he has seen you, or ignore him, hoping he didn't see you? I don't feel like taking any chances in the temple of Fel Kyrinla, so I think we are going to silence him. At the end of the day, he is working for a god or goddess of evil. He's paid his money, he's taking his chances. I don't think he's got anything to complain about if I brutally murder him. You creep up behind the old man as he shuffles along the corridor. Would you use the pommel of your sword to try and knock him out or strike him down with your sword? No chances, I think, here. Let's go for a nice straightforward murder. You drive your sword into his back. He lets out a scream of pain as he dies. Lord Min, a small Agile young man is behind you. He says, sloppily done. We may all pay for that. Now hurry. Whoops. Should have stove in his skull. You are padding silently along the landing towards the stairs which lead down when a loud pealing of bells fills the air. The alarm, snarls Scarface. You freeze. Looking back, you are astonished to find you cannot see the thieves who you thought were behind you. All you can see are shadows. You are on your own. Will you go back to find the thieves or run down the stairs ahead of you? I don't think I'm going to be able to find a thief who doesn't want to be found. So straight down the stairs, I think. You run down the stairs four at a time. You reach another landing before you hear the tramp of feet coming up from below. Thinking quickly, you hide behind an arras. Test your luck. I hope I'm going to be lucky because I quite honestly do not know what an arras is. Is it something you could legitimately hide behind? Okay, it is a tapestry, if you are also wondering. Apparently featured in a hamlet, it's the one Polonius hides behind. That's an arras. So, uh, let's test our luck. Seven, that's good enough. To an arras, basically an ideal thing to hide behind. Unless you want to be stabbed by a Danish prince. So, uh, I am lucky. You can hear the clank of armour as a group of guards rushes past the arras, heading up the stairs. You continue down until you reach a double door at the bottom. A guard remains on duty before them. She shouts a warning and runs forward to attack you. You must fight her. So, the temple guard has a skill of seven and a stamina of eight. If she is still alive after five combat rounds, something bad happens. I need to kill her within five, which means I can afford to miss her once. So, uh, yeah, another interesting little wrinkle in the adventure. I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, I managed to stab her to death just within five combat rounds. She hit me once, taking my stamina down to 13. So we get the good outcome, I hope. You step over the fallen guard and pushing open the double doors, enter the inner sanctum of the temple. A tall raven-haired woman, Horkana, the high priestess, is praying at the altar, upon which lies the talisman of death. 
Beyond the altar is a large marble statue of the goddess wearing chainmail, her expression arrogant and cruelly beautiful. Horkana rises and turns. She resembles the statue and is wearing a long dress of black chainmail. That sounds awesome. Ridiculously awesome. How dare you in desecrate the temple? How dare you interrupt me when I'm speaking with the goddess? She says softly, white with rage. I dedicate your soul to the goddess. She drives her fist into the air and chops it downwards. A pillar of flame descends from the vaulted roof. It's a nice picture of her in her very, very nice chainmail gown, looking very, very cross, still quite horsey. So we need to roll a die, one to four, or five to six are the two options. So one to four, one thing happens, five to six, something else happens. We get a five. I feel like my luck since that awful fight with the two toughs has been a bit better. Having said that, you are engulfed in flame. The pain is terrible and you can hardly see. Lose six stamina points, taking me down to seven. If you are still alive, you may wish to use one of the following, if you have any of them. Vapours of Speed, Unicorn Amulet, Scroll of Agonising Doom, or none of these. Well, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that the one of those I have is none of these. So we will find out what happens with that. Horkana draws her sword and advances on you, snarling with tigerish ferocity. You must fight the High Priestess. Horkana has a skill of 12 and a stamina of 14. So I need to hit her seven times. And I've got a skill of 11 stamina now seven. So I think this could be the end of our adventure. But regardless, I'm going to roll some dice. Perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the High Priestess Horkana, having set fire to me, then proceeds to pretty efficiently, I have to say, beat me to death with her sword. Barely broke a sweat doing it. I managed to land two blows on her in the course of the combat, and then she just went to town on me with her big old sword, and it all ended rather badly. So, that is where today's adventure is going to end, and I'll be back with some closing remarks in just a few seconds. So that was at least some of Talisman of Death. A bit like Caverns of the Snow Witch, I feel like there was more to discover, and I was considering going back and doing a second episode looking at the second half of this gamebook. In the end, I came to the conclusion that would be overkill on this occasion. With Caverns of the Snow Witch, I felt like I'd had a very constrained experience, and there was a lot more still to go, but I think Talisman of Death gave me quite a satisfying little adventure, even if I only made it about halfway through. That first half is arguably the most interesting half of the adventure. It's a curious entry in the fighting fantasy sequence, this one, and that's understandable considering that the authors were not trying to ape the house style, but rather bringing players an introduction to their own fantasy world of Orb. It's thicker than the average fighting fantasy book for all that it still weighs in at 400 paragraphs. The writing style, I would say, is considerably wordier than either Steve Jackson or Ian Livingstone typically employs. I would argue, at times, it's nicely expansive, but at other points, it's a little flabby. I wouldn't say that it's badly written, not like some of the bonus episode books we've covered, just that it's not as tight 
as some of the classic entries in the fighting fantasy sequence. As is so often the case here, looking at something outside the main franchise reveals some of the strengths of the Jackson and Livingstone books that I wasn't previously aware of. Their writing is laser focused and they both have a knack for delivering in a sentence what other writers might deliver in a paragraph. Along with a different style of writing, Talisman of Death also has a different feel in terms of how it's constructed. This is both a positive and a negative. On the downside, your quest can feel a little aimless at times, as though you're wandering through a world which doesn't massively care about your mission. And I didn't feel the pressure I usually feel to explore every nook and cranny regardless of how dangerous it might seem. It's easy to throw shade at Ian Livingstone's habit of giving you a shopping list early doors, but that does create a sense of tension. It encourages exploration, and it gives you a sense of achievement each time you find an obscure item on your list. The upside of Talisman of Death's less focused approach is that the world feels more real in some ways. In the City of Sages, I constantly felt as though I were an intruder into a world that was quite capable of getting along without me. That's quite a neat feeling, and I don't think another fighting fantasy gamebook has left me feeling so diffident for all that I think I prefer the classic fighting fantasy approach. Related to this is some very strong encounter design. This to me is the absolute highlight of the book. It manages to convey a sense of peril in the early stages without really relying on fights. I didn't have to get my fighting dice out for 28 minutes, which might be a record, yet there was a constant feeling that things could be about to go wrong at any moment. It's not actually politically tough, although I made it look remarkably tough in my playthrough. There's ways and means of dialing down the difficulty on most of the fights, and even the Horkana fight that did for me in the end is manageable with the right approach. I would say you probably do need a fairly high starting skill to get through it though, even in the easiest iteration of the fight. What's really nice is how many of the fights have little special rules attached to them. There's a number of fights where you're stabbing against the clock. If you don't see the baddie off quickly, then something bad will happen, often something fatally bad. That adds a sense of drama to a fight with a skill 8 guard because you can only afford to miss once. And even with a very high skill, that's definitely a possibility. There's also the skill-draining minion of death, but perhaps the best example of this is the fight with Choichev and Cassandra, where you only actually need to beat Choichev, but Cassandra is the one dealing heavy damage. You get a choice of whether to try and take out Cassandra first to avoid those three stamina attacks, or whether to risk it all on focusing down Choichev and hopefully ending the fight quickly before you take too much damage. A fight you can approach multiple ways in a system as basic as fighting fantasy is really impressive design, and it's amazing that 11 books in, people are still finding ways to iterate on fighting fantasy. In general, I came away from Talisman of Death feeling pretty positive about it. I did play through the book to the end, after the recording, and it's not particularly difficult once you get out of the City of Sages. It generally plays fair with the player, possibly to a fault. I've said before there's a balance to be struck between letting the player feel good about spotting the right way through a challenge, and also serving up twists and surprises so they don't feel as though they know what's going to happen. Too much of either is a bad thing, and it's really difficult to get the balance exactly right. The second half of Talisman of Death gets very linear, and it doesn't quite serve up enough memorable or unique encounters to compensate. With Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, there's a pervasive sense that something 
really weird is probably just around the corner, and I did find myself missing that. It doesn't help that Orb itself doesn't quite leap off the page. This is a purely personal thing, and it might be as much to do with my own profound sense of nostalgia for fighting fantasy as anything else, but I found the setting didn't inspire me as much as it might. There's elements I like very much. Religion being front and centre is great. That's something that the mainstream fighting fantasy books don't really cover. And there's a commendable focus on human characters. But somehow the setting felt like disparate elements that sat rather uneasily together. The best fighting fantasy books have an underlying theme that ties the whole adventure together. So in The Island of the Lizard King, you get a fantasy take on the tropes of Victorian adventure fiction. The Citadel of Chaos has a very surreal, almost Monty Python vibe, which remains consistent throughout. And Caverns of the Snow Witch is all about the cold and the battle against the elements, and that recurs as a motif throughout. Talisman of Death doesn't really have that. You go from an underground lair to a generic countryside to a somewhat odd city, then a plateau, a jungle, and a mountain. None of them, with the exception of the city, feel fully realised, and none of them are really united by a coherent atmosphere. The temptation to compare the City of Sages with Port Blacksand from the City of Thieves is, I think, a little unfair. Port Blacksand is one of the truly great fantasy cities after all, but it is there at the back of your mind when you're playing through Talisman of Death that you could be playing City of Thieves. Still, I would call Talisman of Death good. It's not great, but it is good. There's some fantastic moments, really good art, really strong art, and I appreciate seeing plenty of female characters. It's sad that so many fantasy writers can imagine all sorts of strange monsters, but can't imagine giving 50% of the human race something interesting to do in their fantasy worlds. So there's plenty to like in Talisman of Death, and I very much enjoyed replaying the first half to make less terrible decisions, and then completing the quest, which I did on a second playthrough. If I'd needed a third go, I'm not entirely sure how well my interest would have held up, and I might well have resorted to cheating at that point. I certainly recommend it if you can find it fairly cheap. One weird final point is that the torches, flint, and tinder that are bigged up so much in the introduction to the game barely get a look in. I don't know what that's about at all. That's it for this episode. I hope very much that you've enjoyed it. I'm hoping the next episode will be a bonus episode to thank my patrons for their support. If you'd like to help obligate me to make additional content, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound. You can contact me by emailing hjdoomretrofun at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you soon. Until then, take care.